listening to the Book Lovers Podcast from Spartanburg County Public Libraries. This is a show where we talk about books, reading, and culture. I'm Joseph Henderson, the Media Specialist. I'm Carmenita Turner, the Media Collection Development Librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the Director of Adult Services. Today we're talking about Thomas Hardy's final novel, Jude the Obscure, which came out in 1895. Jude was so scandalous that some copies were sold in brown paper bags, and ultimately Hardy quit writing novels due to the response. We dig into Jude's status as a classic, the amorphousness of scandals over time, and we discuss the woes of our titular hero as he loves and lives. Let's get started. Jess, I thought we could start this episode by talking a little, a little bit about why we chose Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy for the book club um, as one of our as one of our picks. Uh, so we can give maybe give listeners a, a little peek behind the curtain <laughs> of the the great mysteries of adult programming here at the library a little light context for yeah this. yeah a little bit of context yeah so the the book club here at headquarters is a long-standing book club we have we have a master list that goes back to 2007 i want to say of picks um, for the book club, but it even predates that. We actually have members of the book club now, which is called Book Lovers, just like our podcast. Um, we have members who are actually charter members of the club that joined when the building was opened in 1997. So this is a very long-standing book club. I mean, book clubs are kind of a cornerstone of adult programming and librarianship. Like you're going to see a book club at every library. And if you don't, that's kind of weird. Let me know because um, I'll have, I'll write an email to somebody about that. <laughs> um, but our book club in, I joined as a leader of the book club in, at the end of 2010. And in 2012, 2013, I forget exactly when I chose to read Tess of the Durbervilles as one of our picks. And um, we didn't really read many classics before that. It was pretty rare for us to do. It was a lot more focused on more recent literature, recent um, materials that had come out. And when I joined, I started to kind of diversify the picks somewhat. So you would see I'm the one who brought in the first science fiction novel that we did. I'm the one who stumped for a graphic novel our first time, that kind of stuff, to kind of expand and brought in the horizons of the book club, which... Um, I think is is like a benefit of any good book club and doing tests was one of the first classics that we did it was the first classic that I did with the group and it was a great discussion um and Tess is like I think one of the first tragic heroines that we see in modern literature like really embodied fully and Hardy has such skill in writing her story um that even though you know like at every turn it's going to be bad for her you're still rooting for her to the very last page and the conversation that we had was fantastic we had 
I want to say 11 or 12 people show up, which for a book club is a larger amount. You want to eat 15 is about the, the top limit of what I can handle as a book club leader. So 12 even is kind of big, but it was such a great conversation about the book and everyone loved it. And that led us to start doing classics every year as part of the book club. And so this year, um, I thought it could be interesting for us to revisit Hardy and read something else by him because a lot of people read tests when they're in school. Not everyone does, but a lot of folks do. And it would be interesting, I thought, to expand on what we already knew about Hardy as a group and move into another story. Yeah, yeah. I um, I stumped for Jude the Obscure, knowing some of that past history about uh, Tess and just the fact that you had said that it was a it was a successful discussion and that people were really able to engage with the book. And I mean, knowing that about the group affirmed something that I have seen not so much in book club settings, at least prior to working here, but what I've seen in classroom settings, that there are simply certain books that lend themselves to conversation in in a particular way they For sure they require discussion um it's it's not simply something to be consumed and then on to the next one and so on but you know that's that's often one of the i guess one of the mental markers that i make when i'm thinking about what could potentially constitute a classic but back to Hardy, I I was stumping for Jude the Obscure because I was aware of its reception and kind of reputation in the context of talking about animal life and animal suffering in literature as it being a kind of forerunner to the more socially conscious literature of the of the twentieth century that that would look at those questions such as something like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, mm-hmm. um, for instance, uh, and, and other work. But, you know, I knew that, I knew that facet of the story and that there was also an air of controversy surrounding the book in, in some similar ways, I think, to the the controversies that surrounded Tess right. upon its publication, but I didn't know the the full extent of that. I yeah, guess. I really, I mostly didn't know anything about it, but I knew that Jude and Tess combined were like so scandalous, and there was such a bad reaction to them that Hardy stopped writing novels altogether, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. that was like the end of it for him. And that piqued my interest to be like, ooh, I want to know what what made that happen. Yeah. Carmina, did you have any like pr- prior knowledge of Hardy or of Jude before we read this? I did, but I think that for me, Thomas Hardy is sort of an example of how you should consider revisiting books that you read in high school or yes. authors that you read in high school. Because there's lots of times where through my adult life that me and my best friend that I went to high school with took the same English class and read Tess of the Dubervilles. And there's still nuance that I think is in the book that my friend does not see in that book. And he's like, oh, this definitely didn't happen. That's not, and and to me, it's like, we didn't have an instructor that was able to properly explain the nuance 
of Tess of the Dubervilles to a group of like 15 year olds. Right. <laughs> to properly dive into it. And I think that with a lot of the classics that you read in school, I think that lately with The Scarlet Letter, that there's just so much there to unpack that it's really hard to do that with the way that books are forced to be taught in schools. And I don't want to say it, I want to say it like that because I don't want it to come across as me being like the teachers I had didn't know how to teach a book. But there's so many standards that have to be followed and teachers are just so limited in how they can actually teach and engage with students, especially in regard to English classes, that I really think that books that we consider to be the classics and that have withstood and continue to be treated as such are that way because they have so much in them to unpack. And it's just something that's really hard to do when you're in a classroom compared to when you're in a small book club setting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm a big proponent of, <coughs> of exactly what you're talking about, Carmenita, of just this idea of rereading and revisiting things, mm-hmm. especially things that maybe made a maybe made some type of impression on us at a certain point perhaps it was a positive one perhaps it was a negative one or it was mixed or what have you but i i am of the belief that we grow we can grow towards things yeah as we have more experiences in our lives as we just simply bear witness to more reality and possibility in the world the books we read the poems we read whatever it is, the, the, the text that we're engaging with, they can illuminate more of that experience once we kind of catch up to them in some ways. Yeah, and I think that Thomas Hardy is a good example of that because he did so much to sort of skirt the lines of what was socially acceptable behavior for his characters and reactions to his characters and just what they did and what they went through that he sort of has that sort of theme throughout his books of like, this is something that needs to be unpacked not something that you can just absorb in one sitting and be done with it. I think that's exactly right. And I think that just this is a this is a point I want to make that I would like to I want to return to uh, sort of later in our in our conversation, but I think that there are there are some deep um concerns in Hardy that may easily be lost on us um when we are when we are younger people and perhaps are filled with a certain sort of optimism about our own experiences and the degree to which we think that we are the authors of our stories and are in fact in control of our own fates and experiences. And Hardy, as a writer, is incredibly concerned with the extent to which we do not author our own stories and the extent to which events happen to us and we simply have to find out how to survive them. Yes, sure. And there's that's definitely a big part of it. But I also think that there's one of the reasons why Hardy is so successful in a classroom setting is because you can read it at 15 and get it on some level. Yes. It is relatable in a certain way. I mean, there's one of the things that a lot of people don't think of when they think of Victorian literature is something that's funny, but Jude has some really funny moments in it. I mean, there's one point where a character throws an appendage of a pig at Jude's face (laughs) and he gets like smacked in the face with it. And that's early on in the book. And there are some really, really great points of humor. This is a buildings roman. So it's all about like Jude's coming of age, him growing up and becoming an adult from his childhood. And he has kind of like a, a bumpy childhood. So there's a lot of relatability there. 
when you're younger. And I think part of the reason why certain classics endure is because it continues to be relatable as you move through the full scope of your life, but it becomes relatable in different ways. Right. I think that's the <coughs> best the best way to say it because it's things where with revisiting it, you're able to sort of understand different parts of it yeah, in a more detailed way. And so you sort of have to experience a book like this a couple of times to understand the full story. I think that one of the big things that makes Jude popular too for even if you're reading it as a kid or if you're reading Thomas Hardy. And when I say kid, I mean like a teenager. I wouldn't recommend this for like a nine-year-old. Um, <laughs> Might be a little advanced. We yeah. need the illustrated <laughs> classics for the nine-year-old. Yeah, Could you imagine the illustrated version of this? <laughs> Lots who's who's going to illustrate that? Hey, Art Crumb? Like who's going to... I read the illustrated classic version of the Red Badge of Courage in elementary school. <laughs> perfect so i think it's Ooh, possible I that's mean, great you could do it it's definitely it possible there are certain <laughs> scenes that would be uh difficult to adapt i think yes which we'll get to in a little bit but one of the things i think that appeals about jude and tess is the scandal of them and this concept of what is scandalous within jude and it seems like even i mean jude was jude was written in it came out in 1895 I believe, and um, back then it was scandalous, and here in 2021 it's still scandalous, but for different reasons, so it continues to change. Yes. And so the original scandal was just like living out of wedlock with your partner and all of this kind of stuff. There's a... <laughs> divorce? There's divorce. Yeah, there's multiple divorces in the book, Jude, and... Um, his beloved Sue, they both get divorced in order to be together and they never marry. They have children out of wedlock. And, there's um, um, bigamy. There's bigamy, yeah, because Jude and Sue are second cousins. There's a uh, murder-suicide by this creepy, creepy child who's, I don't nine? Mm-hmm. Eight or like nine, nine yeah. who yeah. kills his, his younger siblings and then himself because of the burden of being a child. Which is just absolutely wild. And then the the misery of life in general, which is a real scandal. Yeah, and I think I think in the in the initial moment of its reception and the initial sort of reactions around the book, primarily the concern was um, sort of oriented around m- what you started to recount here Jess which is everything surrounding the institution of marriage and the degree to which Hardy is absolutely scathing in his in his depiction of the institution of marriage essentially as an organized social form that is bent against the biological imperatives of human life and yeah, flourishing. Yeah, it's considered an organized social form of prison, right? More or less. <laughs> in, in Hardy's perspective. Yeah, yeah. And he, he loops that in with organized religion and kind of ties those two together and how religion, especially, of course, in this book, Christianity, really pushes you into that scenario and reinforces the idea that you must marry, you must have children, this is your life, period. Right. And no other life is considered as valid and also just simply 
purely questionable. And when when Jude came out, it was serialized, <clears throat> and people were thirsty for the story, but also thought it was so scandalous. I actually read an account online that said that some parts of the story were sold in a brown paper bag <laughs> so that no one would know that that was what you had. Right. Which, like, today, when we see a brown paper bag, what's inside of it? The other scandal, which is liquor. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then I think of, with that, I'm thinking of um, when people are reading kind of salacious romance novels yeah, and they get the hardcovers right. so right. they can take the dust jacket off when yeah. they're in public. Uh-huh. Yeah. And just yeah. pull that off and then it's just like a red cover. Yeah. Right. No one knows what it is. <laughs> yeah. Or specifically getting the ebook of a salacious novel so that you don't have, so that nobody right. knows what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, folks, if you're reading salacious novels, be proud of that. Yes. Right. 100%. Yeah. Embrace it. <laughs> Uh, one of the um, one of the early lines that uh, just a quick little line from from Hardy that I think indicates the the degree to which he's interested in critiquing again the social form and institution of marriage is uh, he describes the he describes the act of uh, becoming married as as one basing a permanent contract on a temporary feeling. Zooey, um, mama is the direct <laughs> quote from early in the book, and and so. Just hearing that, you can imagine like hearing how that, much further he goes. Yeah, hearing that in 2021 is kind of harsh in sure, a way um, sure. and judgmental. So imagine that hearing like, that at the turn of the 20th century. That right. sounds like the um, climax of a romantic dr- drama of when the couple is like talking about should they get married or if it's a teen drama, they're talking about should they go to a college together and one of them just drops that line. Right. I don't want to make a permanent decision based on a temporary emotion. Right. It also makes me think of the end of The Graduate when they're sitting on the bus together and they're like, we did it and then their faces fall. Yeah. <laughs> like, hello, darkness, my old friend, please. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. yeah the, all the optimism falls away. Yeah. Uh, the, oh no, what did we just do? Right. Maybe this wasn't the right decision. What I really like about this being so scandalous that people hit it when it came out was it's not like there were mega stores like Barnes and Noble where you would go to buy your books. It was small bookshops or even just newsstands where people were going to get this stuff. So you knew the person that sold it to you. They knew you. They knew your mom. They knew your parents. They knew your whole family. And you knew their whole family. And you'd still have to balance like this book is so salacious and terrible but i have to know what's gonna happen i've gotta know the scandal (laughs) so you still show up at this newsstand when it opens on the new day that this serialized section of the book is going to be published so that you can get it ready yeah you're hooked on it and it's it's the same as we don't see scandal as much in books anymore i mean there's still certainly books that reach that point like 50 shades of gray but the way we see this kind of hook on serialization is especially with TV now. Oh, 100% definitely. And I mean, I think the most recent example is WandaVision, but there's also Game of Thrones is a good one. Lost is a good one to suggest where it was like people had this insatiable obsession with what was coming next. Right. And it's the same way with Jude. Yeah. Yeah. This sense of um, popular media, popular media and its particular form of distribution um kind of feeding into feeding into the very popularity of the particular thing um that there is this sense of audience anticipation built around what's going to happen next and that sort of thing right it's interesting it's interesting as a contemporary reader to read novels that 
uh, did have a previous life as as serialized forms uh, and and like being published piecemeal along the way as serialized units because I think that even without necessarily knowing well here's where this particular part ended as you're reading you you do get a sense of that in the kind of momentum of the story or the way that the story is broken up right i mean it's something that i thought about in the context of um it's also something that i thought about in the context of adaptation and say for instance why an author like jane austen's works often lend themselves so well to the limited and miniseries format um if you if you know austen fans or are one you probably have strong feelings about the difference between the uh, you know, film versions of Pride and Prejudice, which are good and hold their own value. Uh, but you maybe you uh, have a feeling similar to mine that the, uh, the miniseries version of, of the novel is the far superior adaptation because it's simply you do have more time to tell more of the story, but it works sort of formally much like the novel itself works in these little installments uh, where you're able to hang plot and characterization on these units in the same way that Austin was as she was publishing this novel in these serialized installments um, yeah. and then eventually bound as a single novel. And with serialization too, there's such flexibility with what you can introduce, right? It's right. kind of like a short story collection in a way where you can pull in all of these different themes and still have it all work together because you've got the common thread of the plot running through it and I think of serialization as one of those things that can really push the envelope in a way that a novel just like a, a fully written novel doesn't necessarily do or a fully written film like I what I think of when I think of serialization and comp comparison to Jude is all my children and I mm. think specifically of the Erica Kane who's played by Susan Lucci the abortion storyline that was in the 1990s and that was very early in terms of the introduction of the concept of abortion to television audiences like it was just like an unspoken thing so mm -hmm. it was really originally introduced on television through serialization because it was like a, a little piecemeal bit. And even within the episode, you would only get maybe 15 minutes of Erica <laughs> at a time. So it was easier for you to digest these kind of wild concepts in a certain way or something new to you that you weren't used to thinking about as something more than just like wholesale bad or wholesale good and kind of developing this more nuanced portrayal of it without it being overwhelming for you. And so I think of Jude kind of in the same way because I look at it and it's like, yeah, you want the thirst of what's coming next, but it also introduces you to the idea that maybe marriage isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be or maybe having children isn't quite the same or a new type of sexuality might be right. out there that you have never heard of before. Right. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different ways to use serialization for the reader to kind of educate them or open their minds without being like ham-fisted about it. I also think that serialization, it forces you to digest this story plot. Yes. Because with the example of the abortion storyline in the soap opera, if that was just one episode, that'd be something very easy for someone that 
didn't want to engage with that, that didn't agree with it or didn't like it to just skip that episode and then you're on to the next one. You don't ever have to think about it again. But when it's done in a serialized format, you have to keep seeing that every single episode for well, several episodes. Well, you still want to know about like the seven other characters that are being portrayed yeah. in All My Children. So it's kind of the same with Jude. Even if you don't like Arabella that much, she'll pop up every once in a while. You'll get through the parts, but then you'll also see Sue and Jude appear. Yeah. There will be certain things that pop up, that kind of stuff. So it loops. it keeps pulling you back because it's not... Nothing has overtaken the story, right? Essentially, yeah. It's a, it's an interesting thing because you know I think in in other forms of like serialized television storytelling, <laughs> you do have those uh, so called you know very special episodes. Yeah, uh, that, Boy Meets World. The, we're looking yeah, at you. <laughs> that well, I'm uh, personally I'm th- the one that I always think of in this context is the episode of Saved by the Bell where Jesse Spano uh, yes. uh, abuses the amphetamines um, yeah. and she's like real real hyped up tweaking super hard um i think of another controversial thing when it premiered and it actually its premiere had to be changed and it didn't air for several months was the um school shooting episode of buffy the vampire slayer oh yeah where it's just about vampires and all the stuff that comes with that but they have the special episode that is about this school shooting that may be happening that she tries to stop and right. that was very obviously like intentionally a special episode oh yeah and it feels like that now when you when you watch it yeah even Um, now you watch and you're like oh this is a very heavy-handed very intense this is unique and different on purpose right i guess the thing i was the thing i was sort of getting getting at with that is like okay so you have those in some serialized storytelling but then you have uh then you have this other approach to it uh which almost feels like the thematic concern or the degree to which um these particular problems or questions or themes or what have you uh, touch on uh, certain aspects of characters in something like Jude the Obscure and maybe even in, um, was it All My Children? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and maybe in All My Children, you and have... And Port Charles, the spinoff. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you, no. you know, there's oh, yeah. like, there's almost this like fractal approach where you're seeing you're seeing not just these characters undergoing this really dramatic situation and you're enduring that for an episode at a time, but instead you're seeing like fragments of it pieces as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're seeing how when characters find themselves in different situations, suddenly now you're reflecting back and thinking about Arabella and all the ways in which she pops up, um, from the beginning of the novel, she causes you as a reader to reflect back on this like continuity of what she has meant for other characters along the way. So she sort of like creates these, she's always making a scene in one way or another. Susan Lucci could play Arabella. Yeah, 100%. Easily. But there's something about that like, gradual revelation of character that happens over a period of time that the serialized the serialized format just lends itself to so well and it feels less like you know not to knock the very special episodes but it feels less like a a parable or a sort of sunday school lesson and more and more like you are dwelling with these characters in time and kind of picking back up with them um along the way 
Yeah, because I think with, especially with Jude and the audience that was reading it, when you have the time to dwell with these characters, you can sort of see their motivations a little bit more. Right. You can understand why Jude and Sue wanted to leave their marriages because you've had time to really sit with that and think about it and think about their motivations and how you want their lives to go while you're waiting for the next installment. Yeah, because I think the other thing, the other thing about, um, Hardy's particular depiction of marriage is that it is a yes it is a it is a commitment and it is a a contract but it's also this measure it's also this measure of time and so he's very interested in he's very interested in exploring the the particular way in which like temporal duration puts all of these different pressures on relationships Um, to say nothing of like how slight changes of setting can can alter that but that was one of the things that i guess was kind of striking to me is this like interesting way in which like hardy would hardy seemed to contrast the longer expanses of time in someone's life versus something like these brief moments of possibility and maybe even something like happiness i think he does grant that temporarily to to it these characters along the way in, in hints and glimmers yeah it's but it's but again it's in that momentary thing right yeah. it's not in this like extended durational ball and chain <laughs> right man <laughs> i think we need to talk about jude the dude <laughs> our our main character our hero yes i guess um yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in the most like classical standardized way, he is a hero in that he's the main character and we hope we wish him all the best, but sure. he certainly doesn't get that. And Jude's a really interesting guy. Um, we first meet him when he's young, six, I want to say, yeah. and we follow him through to the age of the he's ripe old of, age of 30. It's kind of like he's kind of cursed from the beginning because they feel like his aunt had very much a you're too dumb to really do anything. Right. No parents raised by his aunt. His aunt who was like pretty checked out from yeah, like. Yeah. His aunt's kind of like, here's here's four walls and a roof yeah. and some food. Do right. your thing, dude. And off he goes. Jude's. But then he has that doesn't stop him from having these big ambitions. To go to the city of Christchurch to study and become a scholar. Right. And that sort of was one of his primary drives at the beginning of his story. Yeah. A lot of what we see for Jude is that he's going to be self-taught. He's going to teach himself everything that he ultimately knows, really, is like learned from books or learned from hard labor, basically. And I... As someone who was taught Latin by another person, I have a lot of respect for anyone who can teach themselves Latin. That's quite impressive. And Jude's able to do that. But what he learns, one of the like many early things that he does wrong in his life is that he realizes he's learned the wrong kind of Latin, mm-hmm. essentially, for scholarship, <laughs> which... They're they're the two. Um, And if he wants to be a priest, which is kind of what he's interested in, he needs to learn ecclesiastical Latin and he's been teaching himself classical Latin and he's stymied by that. He Jude comes from a pretty poor background, so he doesn't have access to this is pre library days, so he doesn't have access to books he doesn't have access to education the way a lot of other kids of his age and in the neighborhood do. 
Um, and he is kind of left to his own existence to try and become more than what he's born into. And it doesn't super work out well for him because he has so many things that come (laughs) up as barriers for his education. Right. Yeah. Hardy is in the same way that he is absolutely unflinching in his critique of marriage as a social institution. He is equally unflinching in his depiction of the classed barriers to an educated life um, in Victorian England. Something that's interesting about the reception history of this book that uh, that I came across and reading about its reading about its afterlife in, in various ways and criticism and, and culture is that Jude's story has been taken by some as an influence or one of the many influences on uh, decision in uh, sort of the structure and the organization of Oxford University to have a separate college uh, that would admit poor and working class students um, that came that came about essentially after the publication of Jude the Obscure. Uh, this was not something that existed before this novel uh, sort of made this a, a a social concern in some way. Or right, it was kind of a way to say concern. like, hey guys, intelligence isn't bound by how much money you have. Right. As it turns out. Yeah. Um, and... And so I think that um, I think that there's a way in which um, Hardy is is invested in this question that I, that perhaps can be could be lost on on some American readers. Not that American readers are not equally aware of the class divisions that you know. Uh, determine you know legacy admissions into Ivy League schools in our own country and such sorts of things but also the the particular like lived history of this in um, in English society in in Hardy's moment and I and so I think that um, I think that there's a there's just a particular agony that he wants us to feel with with Jude and Jude's particular struggles simply around this these these obvious these points of almost obvious oversight where it's to say well you studied the wrong Latin but of course you can't know that you're studying the wrong Latin if you don't have some sort of Sherpa no uh, one's telling you that you've found the wrong Latin <laughs> yeah or sort of some sort of like docent that's working with you right. to our tutor to um uh to shape your studies in a particular way because there is a particular way there's a trajectory that your studies must take if you are aiming to be in one of these larger professions so you think the way that this is still that i think this is still very particularly relevant for american audiences is that just as in this culture in the Victorian society there was this idea you have to get married and you have to get married in this way and have this number of children and do this type of thing we have this idea particularly and almost uniquely in American culture that you have to go to a four-year college and if you don't go to a four-year college you're never going to accomplish anything ever in your life right while still having this culture that also says 
college is ridiculously prohibitively expensive right. across the board from public to private to even things like the community colleges can be very cost prohibitive but we have this culture that says you have to go here so i think we can still capture that frustration that jude had of wanting to accomplish this thing and being told he needed to accomplish this thing but just not having the resources to do it yeah the the awareness of um the awareness of all of the various barriers that are put in front of people to just have not even succeed but simply have the opportunity the potential to succeed right. in in life in some form and there's this there's the concept of this is something my <clears throat> my best friend and I have talked about a lot because both of our alma maters are going through this kind of reckoning with their histories and what um, what names they put on their buildings. Sure. Which big surprise we're doing here in South Carolina as well. That kind of thing. And one thing that she mentioned is like, you can think about the school, you can look at the buildings, but these buildings were built on the backs of whom? Mm-hmm. And you don't often think about who built these buildings and was never allowed in them. Right. And Jude gives us the opportunity to see the frustration of someone who really wants that and can never get it and is relegated to fixing the brick on the outsides of the buildings. Like that's his duty. The only way he'll get into the building is if he has to shelter from the cold or maybe use the bathroom or something like that. Right. He is not. A, he can't go into the library. He that he has a reckoning uh, relatively early on during his time in Christchurch, where he says he remarks on the beauty of all of the architecture around him, all of these incredible buildings, and realizes that none of it is for him. Right. And, and we see that now with higher ed too, where how when you go to tour college or you visit a college as a stu- when you're a student at that college or when you're a prospective student or even as adults when here at the library we do tons of outreach to lots of different parts of the community including colleges sometimes you see the types of you see the the majority of the students are one type of person and the majority of people that are the grounds crew the cleaners that's a different race of person and so that right at, right at the beginning sort of sets up this barrier with the college where even if the college isn't meaning this and is actively working against this, they're saying this is the type of person that comes to this college and this is the type of person that cleans and repairs this college. Right. Right. There's a homogeneity there yeah. for the students that you you build and lean into. Yeah. So there's a really there's a really acute way in which hardy is able to is able to handle this and jess you've you've alluded to this to to this particular scene that comes up uh several times um in uh in in the context of jude Foley's experiences in Christchurch is that um he is he is sufficient and is uh, sufficiently talented and intelligent he's considered sufficiently talented and intelligent enough to work on the buildings themselves as a stonemason, uh, but never really to enter them or to engage with the ideas that are that are present within them. Right? He's not regarded as um, as uh, uh, able to 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 do that or sufficient to those demands, despite the fact that he has worked for so long to be self-taught in classical Latin. We've all just had like a, a complete and total shared fever dream, and we've been calling it Christchurch this whole time. Christchurch yes. is the capital of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. The town that Jude lives in is Christminster. 
So we want to clarify that. <laughs> Sorry, everyone who's been listening. It's a shared, a shared mass delusion that you've all now Just, been witness yeah. to, perhaps <laughs> in participating the, in yourself. Congratulations, you're in on the joke. You'll never think of it as not Christchurch. And we are right. literally podcast professionals. <laughs> yeah. And still can still make got this it wrong. Error. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. It is what go. it is. I think this is a good place to pivot to Sue. Jude's beloved. And Super also <laughs> it makes me think of the the Prince Philip Queen Elizabeth video that's been going around where the guy's like the interviewer is like, Tell us about how they met and there's a long pause and the interviewer says, Well, they were related. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Sue and Jude, they were related. Yes. <laughs> they are Which, cousins. <laughs> Which is an interesting thing because this has been, to Jess, this has been the biggest this scandal the, of the book. Yes, for me, it's an enormous <laughs> it has scandal now. plagued her since we first started reading it. It yes. like, As soon as Jude gets starry eyes for Sue, like he, I don't know, he's in the process of lifting a rock with a bunch of other people and he stands up and locks eyes with her. And I'm like, you idiot, you're about to fall in love with your cousin, aren't you? And then he does and you're just like, dude, what are you doing? But I keep reminding myself, <laughs> in Victorian England, this wasn't all that strange a thing to do, mm-hmm. was to marry your second cousin. And, I mean, the Roosevelt's, Eleanor and Theodore, they were, were not Theodore. Franklin? Franklin, yeah. Teddy was doing something else entirely. Um, Eleanor and Teddy were, God. Eleanor and Franklin. Eleanor and Franklin were married and they were cousins they were second cousins so just like uh sue and jude but that to me is part of like why this is such a classic is that even if the scandal changes over time the scandal is still there yeah because now it's like okay you don't want to get married but you're gonna have kids and be together that's fine that's not a big deal marriage is a joke from religion like whatever but people accept we're we're a lot more accepting of that i wouldn't say we're totally accepting of it as a society but a lot more accepting but we as a society are not up with your cousin of the cousin it's a no (laughs) it's a big no no So Sue's a very interesting character because she is what I would call, and I'm not an expert in this, so I could be wrong, one of the earliest displays of a type of asexuality in fiction. Yeah. Right? She has no interest in anyone, really. Her interest is in, like, thinking about things, talking about things, learning stuff. She has no interest in relationships. and She's very explicit about the fact that she has no interest in having sex, period. Right. And she even apologizes for leading men on (laughs) at one point because she's a beautiful woman. And so she has, she's had many suitors, but she's just like, this is, this isn't it for me. Yeah. She's interested in the, in the exchange of ideas and uh, she's interested in conversation and, um, and really, um, you know, contemplating um, big, big questions um, about life and existence and so on. I thought that the way that um, some of the ways that Hardy uh, narrated Sue's character and would describe her um, in in relation to in relation to Jude was often quite interesting. In that, um, the way that Jude often thought about her, despite his desire for her was almost as if she were bodiless, um, almost as if she were 
a a spiritual being first before she were like corporeal in some in some way um and and that was that was really curious to me and i felt like that was another at least in my mind that was another facet of um hardy's revelation of this perhaps um asexual dimension to to her character and now you know that could be that could be an an aspect of her character that contemporary readers might take some umbrage with to say well you know i i you know a reader might say uh, might wonder why this character would be depicted in this way as if she were as if she were bodiless right um and sort of spiritual you know playing off those classic dichotomies between the the body and the soul or the body and the mind or something like this um but uh but again you know situating the book in its time and thinking about it in the in the 1890s and the way in which you know vocabularies have evolved to describe human experience in a much richer way uh this is what hardy had right and this is sort of the mode that he was that he was able to to work in so that was one of the that was like one of the strains that i felt would pop up over and over again with sue uh that i would find myself following another one that i i thought was really striking in um in Hardy's depiction of Sue is that, and this was less, this was less coming from Jude's perspective all the time and more just sort of from the, a general narrative perspective was that Sue is often described as constantly being in motion. Um, she's a busy bee. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's, she's always doing something. Yeah. She's always described in light of this like really vibrant um, existence. So that, that kind of like, I don't know, that kind of counterbalance that bodilessness. It's just like, well, you can't really pin her down, you know? She's always she's always doing this, she's always doing that. She's always her mind is kind of racing as she's thinking through all of these things. And there's something about her comportment that reflects that activity yeah. in some way. So an interesting th- an interesting thing to me about Sue is that she sort of is one of the first characters in this story that introduces the reader to the idea that maybe marriage isn't super great mm-hmm. she's getting married she's getting ready to get married to Phillipson um not Jude that happens later <laughs> kind of um and when she's writing a letter to Jude she says a really interesting thing that sort of is Jude's first time hearing someone say anything against the idea of marriage that the, their their whole society is built on She says, um, I have been looking at the marriage service and the prayer book, and it seems to me very humiliating that a giver away should be required at all. According to the ceremony as they're printed, my bridegroom chooses me of his own will and pleasure, but I don't choose him. Somebody gives me to him. And it's just wow, Sue. Yeah. <laughs> Sue, our feminist hero. Yeah, Sue, our feminist close reader. What I yeah. like. So not only is she one of the first representations of asexuality in literature, but she's also one of the very first representations of a feminist type character. Yeah. In literature, because she's someone that says, "I didn't choose this guy. He chose me. And why is anyone giving me away to anyone?" Right. And so it just really brings, she's sort of the one that sort of introduces Jude almost to this 
almost anti-authoritarian view for the Victorian era of society. Yeah, and it's this. Uh, it's it's interesting to sort of parse how she how she performs that particular close reading because so much of it so much of it depends on her assertion or her desire to assert something like will and willfulness and really the term we would now use in media criticism is something like agency right, right? right. this is the thing this she wants is the her thing. own agency and exactly. she already sees that the world is set up so she doesn't have it right the yeah. contractual basis upon which the marriage rights ceremony are constructed uh, do not allow her space to make this particular claim for herself and I would challenge any of our listeners uh, to uh, to this show to actually do a little bit of comparative research if you are curious. Oh no! To are see, you assigning our listeners wait, homework? I'm getting close to it. Listeners, guess who is a professor in a previous life? <laughs> what I would suggest <laughs> it is a very interesting thing to spend a little spend a little time researching. Should you want uh, to see how? marriage uh, legal documents are constructed on a state-by-state -state basis and whether or not there are spaces in the given in your current state of residence for both partners of a marriage contract to actually assert whether or not they want to be part of that yeah. uh, I would suggest I have uh, a guess about how that kind of goes. <laughs> I well, every state is a little bit different. New York is different than South Carolina is different from Texas, for example. That's one I would definitely recommend you take a look at. Um, but uh, real quick, my when my parents got married, my mom specifically had taken out of their vows love, honor, and obey, and it changed to love and respect. There you go. Yes, I love yeah. that. She was like, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until like a couple of years later that my dad was like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a gosh darn second. Right. But again, you know, Got these, me. the the very thing that Sue Bridehead is objecting to, yep. right, is is absolutely present with us in 2021 in different ways should you desire to look into it and sort of see again on that comparative basis um, how these legal contracts and these these sort of legal proceedings are constructed and how they determine or how they sort of shortchange the the notion of legal and willed agents in the world so that's just a little sidebar but back to sue right so she's this, she's this means, another means by which Hardy is able, as you're saying, Carmenita Hardy is able to advance this particular critique of marriage. Because look at this, look at this character, look at the, the vibrant potential life we could, we could imagine for her and the, the incredibly narrowed and increasingly narrowing, um, circumstances of her life over the course of the novel right because when she marries Phillipson, she becomes a teacher she's kind of she's trapped into this existence and when they divorce jude divorces his wife <coughs> she's sue in particular is able to live in a certain type of freedom Right, yes. without right. being stymied by marriage and she and jude are planning to get married but she's just like i can't do it like what's i can't I just can't do it. And eventually that becomes her own self-perceived downfall 
because she and Jude live live outside of marriage. They have kids. Um, Sue, there's no discussion of really like their sex life or anything like that. It's probably out of a sense of duty and honor and obeying essentially. (laughs) Um, But they have a couple of kids and then (laughs) surprise, surprise Jude has another child by Arabella and essentially Sue's downfall is that, the one kid who is Jude and Arabella's kills her children. Right. And that, which which then leads to Jude doing a bit of a 180 when she sort of goes deep into, right. That pushes her back to religion and says, I've been living my life wrong this whole time. I have to learn to abide by the religious rules that have been given to me to repent and to make things better. Whereas Jude kind of loses any sense of faith that he had previously. Right. Yeah. It, uh, that event, um, of little father time killing himself and that's the child's name. Yes. Uh, (laughs) by the way, his real name is Jude, but he is referred to in the novel as little father time because I imagine him sort of like a, a Benjamin Button type of character. He is a, a, young, old a man. baby in a medieval painting yeah. where they have the baby bodies, but the old man faces. <laughs> that's what he is. Mm-hmm. And that is genuinely how he's described. Yeah. He's yeah. described as looking very old for a child. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Hardy must have seen one of those paintings and been like, that's my guy. <laughs> that's <is>. my kid. <laughs> Little old man. Um. Is that what you looked like as a child, Joseph? <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> in some pictures. No, I joke that I, uh, that childhood pictures of me are just indications that I have always looked about 47. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for the singularity when you become When I become 47. 47 yeah. And then I look like and myself we'll look again. And look at the photos and be like, yep, this is yeah. it. Twins. <laughs> yeah. Call David Fincher. We're remaking <laughs> The Curious Adventures of Benjamin Button. Um... <laughs> Uh, so, but yeah, she does a yeah. bit, she does a 180 and she sort of becomes very entrenched in this idea of, I have to go back to my first marriage yeah. and I just have to follow the rules. And if I follow the rules, everything will be okay. Yeah. She subjects herself in some ways to, um, to the, uh, cultural, you know, invocations towards obedience and subservience that we've seen her resist so stridently for so much of the novel uh, prior to that point for, you know, three quarters of the novel, more or less. She takes those her punishment. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have a lot of thoughts about that, um, about that turn in, in the book and maybe we can get into them here for, for just a moment. I think that, um, I think that Hardy's doing something very interesting with, with Sue and his choice to have her make this turn not simply to get us as readers to say, well, what happened? You know, what happened along with Jude? What happened to this bright-eyed, almost quasi-pagan, profoundly intelligent uh, person? You know, we we feel that loss, I think, along with Jude. I know I did. Um, yeah. But but the other thing that I felt about about Sue's turn is this sense of, I shared with Jude, I felt, his sense of indignation 
about her her new devoutness where in some ways what she was doing in making in trying to make sense of this terrible tragedy losing all of her children in this this horrible event is in some ways justifiable this is what we do bad things happen we seek to find a reason for them uh this is incredibly relatable on a certain human level. And yet at the same time, I think what Hardy is able to do with Jude and his view of Sue in this moment is to show us how absolutely monstrous it is to think like this, mm -hmm. to say that there is some divine power that is doing this to us and we deserve it. Right. It's profound what, uh, what Hardy is able to, to achieve with the contrast between these particular characters. And I think it shows just how in tune with thinking uh, really critically about the nature of tragedy and how some tragedies can come to feel justified and how there is this human desire to find meaning in this uh, awful event. Um, how, how on the one hand it is absolutely relatable and it is absolutely something that we do and on the other hand it is as if we are we are our own moral monsters in trying to do this. And it's one of the it's one of the real high wire acts of the book that that again I felt was a real accomplishment. I agree with that because I think it's really forcing people to confront this idea, to say, to disagree with um, Sue's reaction to the deaths of the children, and to to really make people think very critically about why this kind of belief and why this why the belief in god like is like this in the society to think that people would be punished so severely and so horribly rather than the alternative which is sometimes bad things just happen right bad things happen to good people bad things happen to bad people <laughs> right bad things just happen and how that's to hardy is more comforting than the idea of god punishing you for a bad thing you did like 10 years ago by killing your children yeah, the, the assumption of a larger morality to events um, is, the, is the thing that I think Hardy wants to, he wants to undo and he wants to challenge in, in his readers, um, specifically through this, uh, this characterization of Sue, but also through, I think, the reader's proxy in Jude Folly and the critical stance that he comes to take towards Sue um, in her turn to religion. So we see J Sue turn back to the church and therefore turning back to her first husband, Philipson. And we see Jude turning back to his first wife, Arabella. Sort of. <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> it's more like Arabella returns with the claws out to try and catch him, <laughs> essentially, and entrap him. Jude stumbles into basically his first relationship with Arabella ends up marrying her. They are ill suited for each other mm -hmm. to say the absolute least. And they're only married for three months, maybe And Arabella pieces out. She goes to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, like I'm kind of bored here. You. I'm going to go with my family to Australia. Go, Bye. Bye. Turns out she has a kid while she's there. It's Jude's, which like in 2021, I'm like, is it Jude's though? Yeah. But in 1895, you're like, yeah, it's Jude's child. Sure, whatever. Um, 
but Arabella is kind of like hooks out, try always trying to ensnare Jude and get kind of like drain the resources from him in some way. And she keeps <laughs> popping up over time and she continues to be kind of this cloud over Jude and Sue. As I think that Arabella is someone who just in a very malicious kind of way clings to whatever feels safest for her at the time. Yeah, for sure. She's a really interesting foil to Sue because Arabella says, these are the rules of the world and I'm going to manipulate them to work best for me. Whereas Sue says, these are the rules of the world, and I'm not going to engage with them at all. Right. I'm going to fight against them. Oh, it's, it's astonishing, right? There's a, there are scenes in the novel where we actually see Arabella just making straight-up defenses of marriage as an institution, patriarchy, like all of this, all of this yeah. repressive stuff. Sort of says, yep, that's, as you say, these are the rules of the world. Yeah. And, and yet, at the same time, we see her manipulating them and working within those constraints. Because she right. goes to Australia with her family. So her family feels much more secure than Jude did. And while she's there, she meets this new guy. She's like, he seems rich and secure. I'm going to marry him. So she sends Jude this letter that says, please give me a divorce so I can marry this other person right. who I've basically already married. Right. And then when that person dies, she comes back to the person who she knows is secure, who is Jude. Right. She feels like I can go back to him now and he can take care of me. And she brings up to Sue a lot this idea of it's not good or healthy or helpful for a woman to be alone in the world. She has to have a man to take care of her. And that's sort of a guiding thing for Arabella when she comes back. And it's not necessarily take care of, but provide. Yeah. Mostly for Arabella, it's money mm-hmm. and security in some way. So it's like it's money, it's a house. It's the material things that she needs so that she can live her life independently because ultimately Arabella tricks Jude into remarrying her mm-hmm. <laughs> and she gets him super drunk and then insists that he's been trying to get her to marry him all night long <laughs> and like basically plants that seed in his mind. Whereas Sue's first husband, Phillotson, is very much kind of this milk toast, supportive, willing to let Sue kind of be. And Sue is so repentant for the this the sins that she feels she has committed that she is willing to go back to him and allow him to have sex with her. And he's like, are you sure about this? Because you <laughs> did not want to do this last time. And he's very concerned, but she feels that she needs to take or she needs to give the greatest of herself in order to show in God's eyes that she has repented for whatever sin she thinks she has kind right. of occurred. Yeah. The language that, that Hardy uses to describe this. And I think this is, um, this is my best recollection of a quote from Sue is, uh, she desires to sacrifice herself on the altar of duty. Right. And that's the, that's yeah. essentially how she sees her relationship now towards Phillotson. Just a total self-negation in some way. pretty Um, much. So they both end up wandering back to their original partners or being pulled back to their original partners in some way and they both are miserable. (laughs) Yes. Like Sue is just doing what she has to do in order to survive and feel better about herself and Jude is just wasted all the time just completely drunk and that's on purpose for Arabella but he's also even when still with Sue he's developing 
a sickness of some sort. He's coughing a lot. He's not, he's pretty weak, not keeping food down, all of that kind of stuff. So he's not doing so hot. And then when, uh, our buddy little creepy baby man child <laughs> little father time little father time kills uh kills their children um that is when jude really begins to like physically cripple in a yeah. certain way mm-hmm. where well, it even gets hard for him to be able to work where before he was able right. to sort of work through some of his sickness and be okay but it's almost gotten to the point where he can't work and he becomes a baker he makes cookies and they're super popular people love his gingerbread cookies that are of the buildings in christminster right so he finds a way to kind of put his own personal spin on this place that has both given him a lot but also taken a lot away from him right and withheld so much yeah still still remaining on the outside of it simply making these things almost in tribute to the to the artistry of this place that hangs so heavily in his mind as um as really the the life that got away not so much the one yeah for sure um do we want to talk about as you describe him creepy creepy baby man child yes i would love to talk about creepy baby man creepy baby man child because this is i feel like you have a lot of thoughts about i have a ton of thoughts about this in particular did creepy baby man child come up when after Jude started baking, what do you mean came up? Because um, Arabella comes back, like e- like appeared in the picture. As appeared as, as in the picture. Arabella comes back. It's before They're baking. Before. Okay, it's before. yeah, it's before. Because yeah. they they take the cookies to the fair, right? And that's where they run into Arabella. And the kids are kids are there. Um, yeah, this this kid is just man. Like, he's very mess. <laughs> dour. He's like some Victorian yes. terminology. He's a very dour child. Spoiled milk. And an interesting <laughs> thing that I thought of about him with when he was born, even though he, he, he dies <laughs> from suicide in this plot, but when Little Father Time was born, that is the generation that became the lost generation right. of American literature. And that whole era of the 1920s and the 1930s of literature in America and Europe, where people were just very downtrodden and not happy with how things were going. And Little Father Time kind of is the beginning of that. And he has this dourness in yeah. him from, the, from birth. There's such a super interesting analysis from Hardy about like this this kind of generational divide. Right. From after after the combined murder suicide, Jude calls a doctor because he's like, Sue's crazy. What do we do here? I got to call my my lady down. And the doctor comes and he he uses what I think is also one of the earliest kind of like it is what it is lines um, in literature. Yeah. Que sera sera, you know, Um because the doctor says this new generation of kids, they're just like miserable and yeah. you have to expect this to happen sometimes, which is such an interesting thing to hear because Thomas Hardy is really one of the very last Victorian writers. So he comes along much later than people like George Eliot and he's seeing he's seeing a real tonal shift and a societal shift, generational shift. There's a lot happening at the turn of the 20th century that he's witnessed to. And he's able to portray in this novel really, really well. And in particular, the way that the doctor kind of analyzes 
little father time and what he represents as a generation is extremely interesting. I thought that was a really great um, take back to something Jude and Sue had talked about earlier. Because earlier in the book, when they're kind of young and cutesy and kind of into each other, but not into marriage, they have this thing where they say that we're just ahead of the times. I think they say specifically like 50 years. Every, we are so The way we're thinking now is how people will be thinking in 50 years. So they're very hopeful about this next generation. They were wrong about 50, maybe 100. <laughs> well, they descri- and they describe themselves at one point um, and in sort of the errors of their... Uh, of their choices as you know accompanying them as choosing to be pioneers yeah and that's the language that um that so they're very uses. very hopeful for the next generation and future generations of people having more agency and marriage becoming right. less of a of a stronghold on society something people go into because they want to do it and then we see little father time who just says nope nothing's going to be good ever no man Right. And he he bears the burden of seeing that he is like the the kind of the weird amalgamation of Jude and Arabella sees his parents living out of wedlock and sees the three children as being representative of the trials and tribulations that Jude and Sue have because they live out of wedlock and because they're not married. And this, he basically is like, I cannot bear the burden of being the child, being the product of this. And it's my fault that this family is this way. So I'm going to remove all of this. And he leaves, he even leaves a suicide note that says, because we are too many. Yeah, done because we are too many. Right. Uh, are the words of the note. Yeah. I, I thought that um, Hardy's characterization of, of little father time was, particularly interesting um in in a number of different ways and one of them was the way in which uh hardy describes how how young jude little father time sees sees the world and is able to learn about the world so this is from um from the uh fifth part of the book and it's uh from a moment when um Hardy is Hardy is describing Little Father Time as a as kind of a learning subject. Um, he writes, he followed his directions literally without an inquiring gaze at anything. This is him writing about Little Father Time. It could have been seen that the boys' ideas of life were different from those of the local boys. Children begin with detail and learn up to the general. They begin with the contiguous and gradually comprehend the universal. The boy seemed to have begun with the generals of life and never to have concerned himself with the particulars. To him, the houses, the willows, the obscure fields beyond were apparently regarded not as brick residences, pollards, meadows, but as human dwellings in the abstract, vegetation, and the wide dark world. And I read that and I sort of think, well, okay, so he has, in some ways, he has this galaxy brain view (laughs) of everything. He sees the world in these general terms, not in terms of people, but as expressions of abstract principles. And you think to yourself, well, that's perhaps one useful way of thinking about certain things, but that must be absolutely unbearable. As a as a as a daily experience, and certainly as a child, Thomas Hardy, child psychologist. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's also kind of an interesting commentary, right, on how people treat children. And right. so in Victorian times, they were treated as little adults and they sure. they did their work. They did, you know, they were expected to be part of the household. They there was no there was not the same concept that we have of child development now as as there was in the Victorian age. Right. And so Thomas Hardy says, well, you want your your children to be adults. What if I gave you a child adult? What happens if we actually make this happen? Mm. And so in a way, it's it's oh. almost a little bit of speculative fiction in a mm. way to say we're going to put the scenario into play and see how it plays out. And you know right. what? It plays out really poorly. Right, right. And I think reading this, I imagine back in the day, this one particular chapter where Little Father Time commits the murders and then dies by suicide is right. uh, probably one of the biggest scandals from this book. But yes. now here in 2021, that is actually one of the smaller scandals of the book. And that's now with our understanding <coughs> of child psychology, that's sort of a, it's sort of a tragedy we can wrap our minds around a little better. Right. Because we see a lot of, we understand why children do awful things and the motivations of where it comes from a lot better than people did in the and Victorian era. And we unfortunately era. see it more with mm -hmm. things like school shootings. Sure. Um, we see accidental death for kids with, you know, firearm accidents and that kind of thing. Um, and it's also written about a lot more. Like we need to talk about Kevin is a really big and obvious sure. one, but a more recent one is baby teeth by Zoe stage. And we're kind of, we've been desensitized to the idea of uh, bad children doing bad things in a way. And I think there's, I think there's also, um, again, there's a, there's a pathological language um, and even a, um, a medical language for talking about things like suicidal ideation and, um, and everything that that can potentially connect itself to. Right. There's a way, I mean, we, we have, we have language for talking about this that is that shares something in or shares something with uh, Hardy's Hardy's particular angle on it, but maybe even draws it. It shows how much he he is thinking ahead. Mm -hmm. Right. And and it even draws it into sharper relief. Right. It's like we have language to describe this even more precisely than him, but it doesn't make him wrong. Right. It I mean, he's right. describing. Yes. Yeah. He's describing suicidal ideation. He's describing irreligiousness. He's sure. describing asexuality. These are all words that didn't exist. Right. In 1895. But it doesn't mean that the the concept itself didn't exist. Right. We just didn't have a term for it yet. Yeah. He's in a different place. He's in a different he was writing from a different place along the continuity of the history. Thomas of Hardy was also 50 years ahead and he was hoping people would catch up. Sure. <laughs> sure. We're I, still catching up now. Yeah. Like a hundred years later. I wanted to just, just call our attention to, um, the, uh, uh, to another passage about little father time, because I think there's, we've alluded to this a little bit. Uh, Jess, you've alluded to this already in relation to how the doctor, um, how, how the doctor views little it father is Tom. what it is yeah um and uh and and there's a point that hardy makes just a little bit past this that i i wonder if we could just kind of collectively chew on so the first bit is this um and this is this is jude this is from the sixth part of the book this is after the murder suicide has been committed um and it's jude sort of 
expressing to Sue how the doctor views the views the situation and how he viewed young Jude. Um, and so Hardy writes, no, said Jude, it was in his nature to do it. This is referring to little father time. The doctor says there are such boys springing up amongst us, boys of a sort unknown in the last generation, the outcome of new views of life. They seem to see all its terrors before they are old enough to have staying power to resist them. He says it is the beginning of the coming universal wish not to live. He's an advanced man, the doctor, but he can give no consolation to, and then there's a break. Um, Hardy goes on from here to say about Little Father Time. The boy's face expressed the whole tale of their situation. On that little shape had converged all the inauspiciousness and shadow which had darkened the first union of Jude, and all the accidents, mistakes, fears, errors of the last. He, he here referring to Little Father Time, was their nodal point, their focus, their expression in a single term, for the rashness of those parents he had groaned, for their ill assortment he had quaked, and for the misfortunes of these he had died. And that's really striking. Yes. Right? Because there's almost a way in which what I take that to mean is that Hardy is showing us that we can read all of Jude the Obscure in some way through Little Father Time as this almost microcosm of of something being disordered, right? That this relationship coming to fruition when it shouldn't have uh, or or this desire being unrealized in some other way, right? But this Desiring, idea... Desiring, suffering, failure, collapse. Right. And it's all in him <clears throat> and it's sort of... And, and in some ways, he his appearance... His appearance in the book is as if he becomes the like the narrative realization like embodied in a single character. Yes. Right? Like not the plot so much, but but he is the he's the moving he's the he's the sort of motor, he's the engine um that drives everything eventually to its conclusion. Yep. He's the catalyst for everything that's happened and everything that's gonna happen. Right. Yeah. But which, he, is a, which is a lot for us to put on like a nine year old. It is. Yeah. But he put it on himself. Yeah. Right? He saw that it was it was on him. They couldn't Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because there's almost a kind of there's almost a metafictional quality to it. Mm-hmm. Where <laughs> and I'm and it's just kind of coming to me now as we're talking. Where Hardy Hardy burdens him with all of this responsibility and the character himself sees himself as burdened mm-hmm. with this tremendous amount of responsibility. And, and he sort of, and Hardy forces us to kind of play both sides of this, uh, this fictional relationship where we see this overburdened character, but then we also see him like, like a cog in the machine, right? Yep. Turning, turning things along the way. Anyway. 
Thomas Hardy does this to you. He also he gives you these galaxy brain moments if you sort of sit with his if you sit with his work uh, right. long enough. I think this is an important moment to note that the book discussion for this went fantastically. Yes, right. And it did. Yeah, it was extremely fulfilling and honestly just really great. We had a great conversation about it, and I think that's that's another thing that you can say about Hardy is that it's just it's readable. It is unput downable in a certain way. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's scandalous. Like I when we when I got to the point with Little Father Time, Carmenia was ahead of me, and she was like, "Have you gotten to?" anything yet <laughs> and i was like i like they're walking around at the fair or whatever and then uh, like that night i got to it and i texted her and just like exploded her phone and was like what is going on oh my god i can't believe this and he just like but you kind of saw nugget you kind of saw the the writing from the wall with little father time i did not know <laughs> i mean i thought that he bit. was creepy i didn't think he was gonna go on and kill his siblings <laughs> than himself <laughs> um, <laughs> But I also don't read like psychological thrillers all that often, so maybe <laughs> I should maybe I should read. We need to talk about Kevin, and then I'll be ready for it in any book where there's any child. Yeah, yeah. we see this child who sees everything in the abstract. It's like, mm, oh, it's bad sign, bad Uh-oh. sign, bad stuff's coming. Uh-oh. Yeah. we've got a Jude situation on our hands. Uh, yeah, got a got a real LFT. Yeah, a little father time. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, God. So returning in some ways to to one of the places where our, our conversation started out, as I mentioned early on, one of the one of the angles of reception that I I was interested in um, exploring a little bit in relation to Judy Obscure is how I came to the novel through uh, writing about the the treatment and the depiction of animal life and in particular uh, animal cruelty and suffering in fiction, um, which which is a it's a omnipresent part of of this book and there are some there are some pivotal scenes in the novel that I think illustrate a lot about different characters and how they think about. Um, those forms of those forms of life, animal life and non-human life and, and how they experience suffering in particular. And it's something that I've been thinking about in the weeks since our, since our discussion of the novel, because in some ways it also provides potentially an insight into how Thomas Hardy wants us to think of this novel as a particular work of tragedy. Because, again, classically speaking, when we're reading something like a tragedy, what we are dealing with is a story of suffering and how particular characters come to terms with that in some way. Maybe they think about it as something that they've done. Maybe they think about it as something that is done to them. But at least in my mind, I see these things as connected. So uh, so that's kind of where I wanted to, I don't know, that's where I wanted to steer us uh, towards the end of our, of our discussion here. So to start this one, let's do just a quick rundown of the animal scenes that we're going to 
bring yeah. it up. Because that way we can give a timeline. Because they happen throughout the book. Right. And some of them are very, very short. Some of them go on for a few paragraphs. So let's just do like a quick rundown. So the first uh, the first really pivotal scene, I would say, it involves um, Arabella and Jude um, early in their relationship and uh, one of the many moments that signals that they are perhaps not a great match for one another um, <laughs> as uh, they they are uh, pig farmers and they have to slaughter a pig in the winter to to sell it for money, for, yeah, money um, and, and neither one of them has extensive experience with well and they've hired a butcher right but the butcher hasn't come yet and they need to do it like asap because there's a storm coming or something of the sort there's a some sort of pressure on them to get this done right away and they start to neither of them knows what they're doing and they have a disagreement about what they even should be doing because they don't know what they don't know what a standard they're just like we should just do it and then they have this disagreement about what's the best way to kill this pig. Right, and when you're when you're doing something like that, when you're doing anything that involves committing to a decision and acting, if you do not commit to the decision wholly, what is being acted upon suffers for it. And in this case, the pig suffers tremendously because they they kind of like nick the artery in the neck, and then the pig very slowly bleeds out and right. squeals the entire time. Like it's it's very dark and it's grim. And it's bleak um, because they don't know how to handle it. And they're just kind of buffooning around. And then when they ha- get halfway through uh, butchering the pig for parts, the butcher shows up and is like, oh, cool. <laughs> you did you, it. You did it. <laughs> and you, did, you did something. And one of the one of the other aspects of the process that's that's messed up um, in uh, their own kind of bumbling approach to it is that they needed to reserve a certain amount of the blood because it does uh, it it like everything else has a kind of monetary value and right. they kick over the pan and you know and make a just make a botch of the whole thing. Yeah. But what's so striking about um, uh, one of the things that's really striking about this scene, aside from the fact that it obviously signals. This ain't a good match uh, the, because these two can't seem to get it together to figure out a good way to do this and to be resolute. Um, this is like the 1895 version of putting together Ikea furniture, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. In a way. That's such a perfect like, metaphor. <laughs> it is the test. It is if the test. If you can't figure out how to communicate to your partner when you're putting that bed together, you might be doomed. Maybe, uh, maybe. maybe it's a bad... Bad Maybe pick. you need to work on your communication skills. Right. <laughs> yeah. Lest you lest you resemble the the sad little animated uh, character. The uh, crying guy in the, the IKEA furniture. Yeah, the book. crying guy on the yeah. on the instruction booklet with him. the little uh, wrench in his hand. With the little Allen wrench. <laughs> but um What but, I thought was really great about this scene with them that shows how they that's what it sets the trajectory, not only for their relationship, but for their characterization through the book, is that Arabella is looks at this whole pig slaughtering as something very pragmatic and practical that just has to be done efficiently. And Jude is looking at it from the emotions of the pig, but also his own emotions of seeing this unfold. Whereas Arabella isn't really thinking about emotions of anyone. Right. 
Yeah. And not, not, I don't think that Arabella was a bad character or that she was a terrible character. And that makes it sound like she was emotionless and heartless, which I don't want it to sound like that's my takedown of her. It's just she wasn't thinking about the emotional aspect, whereas Jude was thinking about it. And Jude wasn't thinking about the practical aspect. There's a practicality to farming, right? Mm -hmm. And they are farmers. And it's very hard if you're a farmer with emotion toward the animals that you are planning to farm and slaughter to to kind of separate those in your mind. And Arabella is able to do that because she's, I think, she comes from a family of farmers. Yes, she does. And so she's able to do that. Jude never has that kind of experience growing up and um, has a much more emotional tack for it toward the pig than Arabella does. Right, yeah. <coughs> he he sees he sees a kind of companionship there. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, and that makes things incredibly ethically murky mm-hmm. um, at best. Yeah, Hardy Hardy describes this with such such precise and, and striking language when he is trying to capture the way that to Jude the pig appears in the in the moment of of death. Um, and this is just a quote from early in the novel where he says that he describes the look on the pig's face as the eloquently keen reproach of a creature recognizing at last the treachery of those who had seemed his only friends. Right. And I mean, it's, um, you know, there's in that scene alone, there is so much, um, there's so much that someone thinking from the perspective of animal welfare or animal rights in particular uh, could, could really draw from as just a clear in indictment of utter unnecessary suffering. So that's the scene, uh, the, this really pivotal early scene with Arabella. Um, and Hardy draws a contrast uh, around this question of sort of animal welfare and animal suffering between the, the approach, that pragmatic approach that Arabella takes and um, the incredibly moral and, and even, uh, we might even say, sort of spiritual approach that Sue takes. Um, there's a scene in the middle of the novel involving uh, a rabbit that's caught in a rabbit trap that, um, that Jude uh, sort of humanely kills. Um, but then there's a later scene in the, in the novel that I wanted to, to focus on in a little bit more detail that involves uh, some pigeons that Sue and Jude are keeping as pets that because of various difficulties that have befallen them and money that they desperately need, um, they're, they're forced to sell along with uh, so many everything. of their other possessions. They have to sell nearly everything that they own just yeah. to be able to set off onto this new journey. Because they're no longer feeling welcome in the town. Right. right. And Sue in right. particular has a real attachment to these birds. She yeah. really loves them. She does. And um and so the way that the way that Hardy stages this scene is that, you know, we see the we see this auction going on and everything has been sort of offered up uh, at its at a particular price. And Sue makes the, um, she makes an impulsive decision. Well, before she makes the decision, the yeah. birds have been sold to a butcher. Right. Whereas yeah. Sue has a fowler, been keeping them. Right? Yeah. Or a poulterer. That's a. Yeah. Sue has been keeping them as beloved pets. Yeah. 
And so her beloved pets are now going to be killed. And the dinner for someone. Yeah, and yeah. the the poultryer doesn't realize what he's saying, but it comes up in the story that the birds will be on someone's dinner plate within twelve hours. Right. They will be sl- they will be killed and prepared for a meal. Yeah, so it's not merely that they've been sold, but rather that they've been sold and they have been relegated from beloved companion to meat and food, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Sue is Sue is horrified at this prospect, and she decides to free the birds and and just release them into the wild. Um, I guess thinking that that would be a better fate for them, uh, despite the fact that they had sort of lived as pets. There's, um, there's two the things time. I really liked about this. One, we don't really see Sue do that many impulsive things. No. She is someone she's who's... Extremely logical. Extremely logical. She thinks a lot about what she's going to do, not only and not only what she's going to do, but the implications of what she's going to do. She just spends a lot of time thinking about that. And this is the first time that we see her see the birds in the cage outside, and she looks around, and then she lets them go, and then she goes back in the house. And it's just a very impulsive spur of the moment kind of a thing but i also really like this for sue as a comparison to the scene of jude and arabella with the pig because with the pig jude and arabella had different views of what would ease the pig's suffering but they both were agreeing on the fact that this pig had to be killed whereas sue says the animal could live there's another option that you two didn't think about earlier. We could just let this animal live. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She says in, on reflection of releasing these birds, Oh, why should nature's law be mutual butchery? Um, you know, this is, this is her, um, particular moral stance. And, and again, it is another, it is another alternative to what seems to be Jude's view, which is, a kind of a kind of pragmatism, but let's say perhaps a a humane pragmatism. There's regret there in the loss of life and in the unnecessary suffering. And then Sue represents a kind of radical a radical stance beyond that, um, where Arabella, on the other hand, is completely pragmatic. They're meat. They're means. They're commodities, right? Um, and so, so I think that. Uh, this this strikes me as yet another way in which Hardy is getting us to think on multiple levels about um, some of the, the thematic concerns of the novel for a novel that is structured like a tragedy and that is so concerned with all of these different forms of suffering through these characters, but also through these animals he, he shows us the, the variety of stances that the characters can take and at the same time perhaps even suggests to us as readers the variety of stances that we can take mm-hmm. on what we're reading and how we, how we can think about these characters in such a variety of ways. Um, and agree with them and disagree with them and just, again, find them to be so rich, so multilayered and complex. So now we want to talk about um, some recommendations that we would all like to make that connect up to various and different things uh, that we took away from uh, in our reading of Jude the Obscure. So, uh, Carmenita, why don't you get us started? 
Okay, so my recommendations are a movie and a nonfiction essay collection. For the movie, I'm going to recommend Revolutionary Road. It came out in 2008. It's um, a really incredible film with our favorites, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. As, Our hearts uh, will go on. Yeah, they're, they're a married couple in the 1950s-ish, trying and failing to balance societal expectations and their own personal ambitions and aspirations. And that was a part of the story that I think is something that's very easy for many people to connect with as far as Jude and Sue as they're trying to balance what society wants from their lives and trying to figure out what they want for their lives and how those two can exist simultaneously for them. So I think that's a really great movie to explore that topic a little bit more. And then the nonfiction book has to do with Sue. Um, Asexuality was the scandal, one of the scandalous parts of this book when it came out. And it's still something that's very difficult to understand even now where we are getting the progress, we have the terminology and the research, but it's still a, a orientation, if it's going to be called an orientation, that can be a little bit difficult to really understand because of our society being set up in a way of romantic and sexual normativity. And so a great book to explore that is called ACE, what Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex by Angela Chen. And with this book, she talks about her own experiences with asexuality and how she came to embrace the term for herself. But she also interviews and discusses asexuality with other people that view themselves as asexual and really discussing asexuality as a way similar, in a way similar to Thomas Hardy of looking at it as not so much saying that everybody should be sexual or everybody should be asexual, but more of a way of saying, why can't both of these types of things exist at the same time in the same world? And what are the things that hinder that? And what can we do to make it easier for people going forward? And it's a great book to sort of understand asexuality a little bit more and really understand Sue's drive for herself a little bit more. All right, Joseph, what do you have for us? I also have two books or two titles. Um, I know you had a movie and a, uh, and a book. Um, the, the two titles that I want to talk about, uh, the first one is Kazuo Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day, which is a novel from 1989. And the reason that I wanted to, the reason that I wanted to talk about it is that it is a novel that is uh, narrated from the perspective of a butler who has served at a... Um, sort of lordly estate Darlington Hall uh, over the course of uh, many years and two owners. One of them was English and one, the current owner now, is an American. And um, the the tenure of his term spanned um, the time before and now after uh, the Second World War. And the reason that I wanted to include this is that I think that this book... Um, like Hardy's Jude the Obscure, illuminates something about the classed nature of English society and all of the the particular, let's call them, uh, internalized delusions and desires for subjugation that someone has to has to believe in in order to uphold. 
the the supposed superiority of of the moneyed classes. This is something we see in Ishiguro's depiction of the butler Stevens and how, in some ways, his own internalization of this uh, ideology of class uh, of class difference um, has so warped and contorted his own emotional life. We see him um, now, after the war, reckoning with the fact that uh, Lord Darlington, his previous master um, and employer, was a Nazi sympathizer, uh, meeting with uh, Ribbentrop and others, uh, essentially working against uh, the the British government in the run up to the in the run up to the Second World War, we also see that uh, his previous owner was a was a virulent anti semite. Um, but at the same at the same time, we see how there were opportunities in Stevens's life for romantic love that he failed to recognize, and how his own relationship with his father was so stunted by. Stevens's devotion to duty and devotion to Lord Darlington. It's a, it's an acclaimed novel, um, but it's one that is relatively new to me, and it absolutely blew the top of my head off when I read it. <laughs> um, the other book that I want to recommend is, is by, um, by D. H. Lawrence, who is a who was influenced. Uh, tremendously by Thomas Hardy. And if you thought that Jude the Obscure was Jude the Obscene, D.H. Lawrence was actually the writer to manage to get his books banned as uh, pornography, not once, but multiple times uh, while he was living <laughs> in, uh, in the UK. Um, and he, he admired Hardy's work so much, it shows through in everything that he writes and in his his sense of of sympathy for the complexity of working class life and the book that i want to i want to recommend from him is um his 1913 novel sons and lovers which is another bill dung's roman um that follows uh the story of a of a young man paul morell who grows up as the as the son of a of a coal miner um, who wants to become an artist. Um, and it's a, it's a gripping, emotional, powerful story. We also have in the depiction of Morell's mother, Gertrude, um, a, a singular and absolutely complex uh, female character that in some ways made me think a bit of Tess, a bit of Jude, uh, I'm sorry, a bit of Tess and a bit of Sue, um, and uh, and it's a novel that uh, is not is complex and there's a, a great deal of darkness in it, but it is not as tragic as um, as either Tess of the D'Urbervilles uh, or uh, Jude the Obscure. And we do see in some ways uh, Paul forming himself and finding himself having frustrations, but in in a different place of something like possibility. Um, so there's a kind of hopeful, uh, almost mirror image to to Jude the Obscure through through its influence on Lawrence's work. So those are my two. Uh, Jess, what do you have? Um, 
Speaking of suffering, <laughs> I one of the books that I chose is A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, um, which actually follows a main character named Jude. And it's about <laughs> four young men who meet at college and they become roommates and their lives as friends, as lovers, as people in relationships, as employees, as really as people living in New York and beyond. And um the the entire world kind of centers around Jude as a character in this novel and his traumatic childhood um how it has made him both tougher and more difficult to get to know um his relationships and how stunted they are by his his past experiences and like kind of just the continual suffering of his existence. And so he and Jude actually have a lot in common. It's a bit of a buildings Roman where they, they're all growing up together, becoming friends, learning about each other. Um, and it's, it's a substantial read. It's a hard and emotional read, but it is very well done and it's very well written. The other book that I have is called The Submission by Amy Waldman, which I think I've mentioned here as a read-alike for certain things before. But in this case, it is particularly a book that falls just like Jude. One of the topics that we haven't covered here yet or in this episode is the architecture in Jude and how the characters respond to architecture as like the biggest aspect of art in their lives. And The Submission falls in the same intersection of this kind of... um, architecture plus religious embrace like where those two meet Jude is at one corner and the submission is at the other this takes place shortly after 9-11 and a commission has been created to vote on what is going to replace ground zero and it's blind submissions and when they vote on what the final um, design is going to be it turns out that the main the main architect the main designer for this is he's Muslim and he there's a lot of strife internally among the commission about what to do do we pick this all of that kind of thing and then when the architect finds out he responds in kind of an extreme way similar to how sue behaves and it's about the dynamic between a number of the people who are on the commission the architect himself um people who are in some way involved, reporters who are reporting on the story, all of that. So you get very much kind of almost this serialized moving back and forth from person to person vibe, as well as digging into architecture as a means of expression and this kind of religious embrace in the face of some sort of adversity or struggle. Both very good novels. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Book Lovers Podcast. All our titles are available in the Spartanburg County Public Library's collections via spartanburglibraries.org. For more information about the titles discussed on this episode, other episodes, or to learn more about the hosts, check out our website, bookloverspodcast.squarespace.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts.